Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're sitting here in Tuckup Canyon on location in the Grand Canyon. We've been floating the Colorado River, and we're now at mile 165. And tomorrow we're going to be running Lava Falls Rapid. We've been doing the guide training seminar here in the Grand Canyon. So we've been in the company of many hydrologists, biologists, geologists, National Park Service employees, and an array of other people who have been running this river for many years, and we've been learning a lot. I'm sitting here now in Tuckup Canyon with Jerry Ledbetter and Larry Stevens. Jerry is a geographer, a pilot, and a boatwoman, overall badass, and river goddess. I want to be like her when I grow up. Larry Stevens, whose guidebook recently came out, Larry is a evolutionary ecologist, and we've been doing chats on the river all along the way and learning so much, and I really appreciate what you guys have shared with us. I would like for you to share with us now a little bit about your early childhood adventures. So, Jerry, I'll start with you. Where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I was born and raised in Oklahoma, which is very flat, mostly. And every summer, my family would go on vacation, and we would pile into the car, and we would drive west. And we drove into Utah and Colorado and explored New Mexico and we came to the Grand Canyon. And once we came to the Grand Canyon once, we kept returning again and again. And at first we did day hikes and then we backpacked in. And every time we saw boats, I remember one time in particular, my mother saw some boats float by on the Colorado River and she said, we're going to do that someday. Larry, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? My motto has always been, do what you can't not. And I have had no control over my life whatsoever. From the age of three, I was dead set on becoming a biologist. I didn't know what biology was at that age, of course. But when my mother pointed at the bark of a maple tree in our backyard in Cleveland, Ohio, and just moved her finger a little bit, and a noctuid underwing moth fluttered its wings and exposed the most gorgeous red and black pattern on its underwings, otherwise completely camouflaged by the tree. You couldn't even see it, and flew off. It's like, oh, man, that is cool. When I finally came to Arizona to go to college, the Grand Canyon was absolutely a magnet for me. I couldn't stay out of it. So I started hiking here in 1970, which is 44 years ago. Really, I've never ever left the place in my heart. Each year, I've done many, many walks in Grand Canyon. In 74, I began running the river which was a great thrill and always just a wonderful opportunity to test oneself against the natural world and learn more about oneself, about how one can handle strange situations that develop in river running. We're on location sitting here in Tuckup Canyon on the Grand Canyon with Jerry Ledbetter and Larry Stevens. Can you guys both tell the folks listening about where you're sitting right now and what you're looking at? We're sitting in the bottom of Grand Canyon in one of the most amazing places in the world. It is so diverse. 
It has so much life. It has such history, human history, geologic history. Just Grand Canyon in and of itself is a record of time stretching back almost two billion years. Humans have only been here such a small fraction of that time, but it's enormously significant in human history as well. Many people who come to Grand Canyon are so smitten by it that they just stay. They cannot leave. And there's been a long record of that as well. And I'm one of them. I just came here and I got stuck. So we're sitting here in the dark at the mouth of Tuckup Canyon, mile 164, downstream from Lee's Ferry. Stars are coming out. There's a crescent of sky up above us and just this incredible feeling of isolation out here in very, very wild land. It's a really rough and tumble landscape. This is not a place we would be sitting in in three months when the summer monsoons come on because the floods that roar through here regularly rip big boulders and huge trees down through the canyon here. We couldn't possibly be satisfied sitting with not knowing whether or not a flash flood was going to come tearing down on us here. So I spent 40 years in Grand Canyon this July, sometimes spending 200 days a year or more in the canyon, and I feel more comfortable here than any other place on Earth. This is a home as much to me as the northern New Hampshire landscape that my family is from. That's always created a bit of a division because I should either be living there or here, but I'm just so comfortable with living here that it just calls me, and it calls me in a kind of a many different kind of dimensions or something through time, through the many friends that I've had that have lived and worked here, the people that I know now, some who've passed, and can imagine the many generations of Native Americans that actually have lived in this landscape too. It's a land with a lot of connection for me, and I just love every grain of sand in the whole place. We're sitting here on the Grand Canyon at mile 165, and I'm speaking with Larry Stevens and Jerry Ledbetter, two people who have done a lot for the Grand Canyon National Park. And we're going to come back later on further downstream and talk a little bit more about the biology of the Grand Canyon and what has happened in the past here and what we can do to continue to protect it in the future. Let's play a song. So, Jerry, tell me about a song that reminds you of your early outdoor adventures? Well, as I said, I lived in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is very flat, and I was so taken with interesting terrain, and so we traveled to Colorado and southern Utah and Grand Canyon, and I remember early high school, John Denver had a song called Airy, and it was about an eagle and a hawk flying over high country, and that sense of freedom, and I played it over and over and over and sang with it. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We're on location floating down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, and I am speaking with Jerry Ledbetter and she has done a lot for the Grand Canyon, fighting for it over the years. And I'm gonna be talking to her about the Glen Canyon Dam, its history, its construction, what it looks like in the inside, and also some of the other potential dams that could have been put downstream and still could if we don't stop trying to prevent these from happening. And what Jerry said was constant vigilance. 
to know what's going on and going to meetings and taking part. We're floating around mile 192, and Larry Stevens is rowing the boat right now, and he's written a lot of guidebooks and also done a lot for the Grand Canyon, so we're going to be speaking with both of them. Thank you so much again for meeting with me. I'd first like to talk to you about the Glen Canyon Dam and a little bit about its history. We are floating past remnants of huge dams that were created by lava flows that flowed into Grand Canyon. They flowed upstream and downstream. The lava traveled downstream for many miles before it solidified. So Grand Canyon has seen dams already that eventually failed. The Bureau of Reclamation, their heyday of dam building was in the 50s. And they were building all kinds of dams all over the country. Floyd Dominey was head of the Bureau of Reclamation. His idea of the best use of the Colorado River would be a series of dams and reservoirs with the only moving water going through turbines to generate power. So they had this plan to build dams all the way through. They were looking at building Glen Canyon Dam at the same time as one in Dinosaur National Monument that would have backed water into Dinosaur National Monument. There was a compromise made by the Sierra Club. They agreed to withdraw their opposition to Glen Canyon Dam if the Bureau of Reclamation agreed not to build the one that would have backed water into Dinosaur National Monument. But the people that made that compromise had never seen Glen Canyon. It was just a stunning spot. It had so much habitat. It was a calm river relative to the Colorado through Grand Canyon. Much more still water, small rapids. I met an older couple who had just put their canoe on their car and traveled from New Jersey and then paddled through Glen Canyon in their canoe. When Glen Canyon Dam went in, that whole expanse of river was lost. And we don't even know what species were lost when that happened. It changed the Colorado River through Grand Canyon quite dramatically. Prior to construction of Glen Canyon Dam, you'd see the average pre-dam spring runoff would be floods of, the average was 90,000 cubic feet per second. Today we're on maybe 11,000 cubic feet per second. The river would be warm and muddy. Even by this time of year, it would be really muddy. And right now, it's pretty clear. And that's because the sediment is being trapped behind Glen Canyon Dam. It's also very cold, much colder year-round than it would be pre-dam. By late summer, my friend Katie Lee used to go through Glen Canyon. She went on a number of trips through Glen Canyon, and she also came on trips through Grand Canyon. And they would just get in the river and float downstream. It was warm. It would be in the 80s. It sounded just wonderful. You can't spend any time in this river and not be kind of unhappy about it. We measured the temperature yesterday and it was 55 degrees. Now this time of year, that's probably not that unusual. But later in the season, 55 degrees is quite cold compared to pre-dam. River running in Grand Canyon is quite popular. A lot of people attribute that to the fact that Glen Canyon Dam is there, as though Glen Canyon Dam allows us to run this river. And people run rivers, free-flowing rivers, all over the world. You don't need a dam to run a river. It would be different. It would be, as I said, muddier. It would be higher at certain times of the year and lower 
probably in June you might see 100,000 cubic feet per second, and by August it might be down lower. By late summer and into fall you could have pretty low flows, but they run upstream of here through Cataract Canyon. They run that without a problem, and it's pretty much free-flowing. It's just when the water gets really high, they take bigger boats. When the water's very low, they take smaller boats, (laughs) but they can still run the river. Tell us a little bit more about the Glen Canyon Dam and what it looks like in the inside, the diversion tunnels and such. Glen Canyon Dam has three pretty major flaws as far as the way a dam is constructed. One is that instead of the spillways pouring over the top, they built diversion tunnel spillways through the walls that are made of Navajo sandstone, and that's kind of the second strike against it. Navajo sandstone is very easily eroded, it's very soft. The third strike is that the spillway tunnels have an elbow, a bend in it, and hydraulically that's not the best design. It's kind of an unsafe design. So it has those three strikes against it. In 1983, the first time they really used the spillways, put them to the test, the water started to cavitate because of those bends, and it started just spewing concrete and rebar and Navajo sandstone into the river below. And what was happening was the river was chewing away at the bedrock surrounding the dam. And actually it started chewing upstream where the original diversion tunnels were put in when they constructed the dam. What they almost ended up with, and the only reason this didn't happen was because it stopped raining, but they almost ended up with a direct connection from the bottom of the reservoir to the river below. And they could have ended up with a catastrophic draining of a 27 million acre foot reservoir. The dam was solid. The dam would remain in place, but the spillways could have failed. And that would have been absolutely catastrophic downstream. Hoover Dam would have withstood it. Hoover Dam has a better design. Spillways are over the top. It would have sustained some damage probably, but it would have held. We're on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon speaking with Jerry Ledbetter. Jerry, I'd like to now talk about the other dams that could have been built in Marble Canyon, the Marble Canyon Dam, and uh, you can float by and see where they were testing out the rock. Well, as I said, the Bureau of Reclamation had plans to build dams all through the Colorado River system, and they knew that they couldn't get away with building a dam right in the heart of Grand Canyon National Park but they had plans to build one about 52 miles or so below Glen Canyon Dam, and they called that Marble Canyon Dam. And then they had another one that they wanted to build down below at Bridge Canyon Dam. But Marble Canyon Dam would have backed water all the way up past Lee's Ferry. Bridge Canyon Dam would have backed water all the way up to Kanab Creek. It would have profoundly affected Grand Canyon National Park. They knew that they couldn't build one right in the heart of Grand Canyon, so they had a plan to divert all the water through a big tunnel underneath the Kaibab monocline and over to Kanab, Utah, where it would flow down Kanab Creek and flow pass through Bridge Canyon Dam. It was a pretty extreme plan, and they had actually started construction. They had started blasting at Marble Canyon Dam. They had a lot of their infrastructure in place to build these dams. And were it not for a handful of people standing up and saying, absolutely not, we're not going to let them do this. We're not going to let them build dams in Grand Canyon. Those dams would be in here. They'd be in place. 
the president of the Sierra Club Board of Directors at the time, they were talking about this subject. He stood up and he made a speech about how Sierra Club should stand firm and we should insist that they put elevators in these dams so that fishermen can get down to the base to fish. That was his idea of a firm stance. But Martin Litton stood up and made a speech. And Martin Litton started running this river in wooden boats in the 50s. And he had a company, Grand Canyon Dories, that operates still. He sold the company in 87, but he had been in Glen Canyon. He had been in Grand Canyon, and he knew it was about to be lost. And he basically shut down the conversation about elevators. <laughs> and the Sierra Club Board of Directors voted to fight these proposed dams that would have flooded big parts of Grand Canyon National Park. I haven't seen any kind of transcript of it, but as I understand it, he said if the Sierra Club is willing to sacrifice Grand Canyon National Park and Grand Canyon, then we might as well just shut down and go home. Who are we as an organization if we would allow that to happen? So following this meeting of the board of directors of the Sierra Club, David Brower, who was executive director, had his marching orders, and he was bound and determined he was not going to allow these dams to be built. He was also executive director of the Sierra Club when Glen Canyon Dam was built. And it wasn't until after construction began that he went on a river trip through Glen Canyon and saw what was being lost. And it, it was just, we're going through a little rapid here. <laughs> it was just heartbreaking for him. And he never forgave himself for allowing that to happen. He said, I think we had the votes He'd been given the job of trying to fight both of those dams in Dinosaur and in Glen Canyon. He said, I got lazy and I could have stopped it. So he charged in to fight the dams in Grand Canyon and he took out full page ads in the New York Times saying, should we also flood the Sistine Chapel in order that tourists can better view the ceiling? Redwood Forest, Yosemite, how can you promise me these natural wonders, Mr. Congressman, if you would flood Grand Canyon for profit? These ads resulted in an unprecedented level of outrage from citizens. And it was really the birth of the modern environmental movement. That had never actually happened before, where people rose up and spoke out against something that had environmental consequences like this an unprecedented number of letters to congressmen, to the president, and eventually these dams were shut down. They weren't allowed to be built. And that's really great. We can be down here now instead of, actually right now we would be on a reservoir, hundreds of feet above where we are. And everything that we've seen the last few days would be gone. This is a heavily faulted zone we're surrounded by high cliffs and big faulted zones and huge areas where lava flows came through the canyon and cascaded down the walls. Beautiful rapids, beautiful country, rich human history, archaeological sites and birds, wildlife. It's just such a rich, rich area that would have been lost were it not for maybe a handful of people. And every time I come through here, every time I pass the Marble Canyon Dam site, 
I thank them. And I usually talk to the people on my river trip and the clients and tell them the story and tell them how important it is to be vigilant and how important it is to stand up to protect this place. Because you think of Grand Canyon National Park as being very well protected, and that's not true. We have to pay attention. One thing that absolutely boggled my mind when I was at the dry land training was this idea of an Escalade getting put in. And so this is just one issue that's out right now. Could you tell us a little bit more about it, Jerry, and how people listening, if they also disagree, write in to somebody and let them know that this is a bad idea. At the confluence of the Little Colorado River and the Colorado River, above that on river left is Navajo land. There are developers who want to build a hotel on the rim and they have the support of some Navajo chapters, and they're talking about putting in essentially a gondola that would go from the rim down to the river. You would be able to see it from the north rim, from Point Sublime. It would be visible from all over, especially this hotel right on the rim. And it's a horrifying prospect. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh, that's pretty funny, you know? That could never happen but it's entirely possible that it could happen. There are chapters of Navajo who live out there who are adamantly against it. And so right now it is sort of in the hands of the Navajo. They're discussing it and they're having meetings and they're trying to decide what they're going to do. And there are some environmental organizations that are trying to push some support toward the Navajo that are in opposition to it. And that's really important to help them because certainly the people that are for it have these developers and big developer money. They have a lot of support, but the ones who are in opposition to it are just trying to get to meetings and they're having trouble coming up even with gas money to do that. So if you're listening to this, pay attention. Go online, look for information about the Grand Canyon Escalade. If you just Google that, you should be able to pick up a lot of information about it. And if you're concerned about this, there are ways that you can become active and you can try to support the organizations that are fighting it. It would be an unprecedented invasion into the heart of Grand Canyon. So I would encourage you to try to get involved, to do some research, to take some action, and to try to send some support their way. We're on location floating down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, speaking with Jerry Ledbetter. The boat is being rowed right now by Larry Stevens, and I would like to play a song. Can either of you think of a song off the top of your head that reminds you of the Grand Canyon? Well, I would certainly probably play the Humpback Chub song. Will you sing that for us tonight so I can record you playing it? All right. I certainly will. Come from that muddy river, funny looking and nearly blind. Colorado River, Gila Cipher, Sea Pop, one of the humpback kind. We survived the ice age floods and the droughts when the river was low. But the trouble really started when the Bureau built a dam 50 years ago. Glen Canyon Dam turned the Colorado River from a warm, muddy, raging stream to a regulated river with daily fluctuations and a trophy trout fisherman's dream. But the changes haven't been all bad for us fish with the Colorado cold and clear. And we love those shrimp like amphipods, like boatmen love their beer. 
Bring back the river, set that muddy water free. We want to frolic and spawn our whole lives long in the shade under whaler's boat. In the sky blue waters at the mouth of the little Now we're caught between the lives of the river compacts and the lawyers of the CRSP. Selling our natural heritage for hydropower subsidy. The only way the barons of water and power in the Colorado Basin states want to see us is filleted on a sesame bun with tartar sauce on their plates. But we've got friends in the government to help us out of this mess. They study us with radio implants, stomach pumps, and trammel nets. As the fisheries biologists fight over their portion of the research funding dish, the Arizona Mammoth Squish Department has done everything that you can think of to a funny-shaped fish. Bring back the river. We beg you all. money spent studying us we could use a couple extra grand we want to buy us a humpback timeshare condo aquarium in disneyland Boney and the router have got a hot scam going on a worm ranch east of grants and lucy wants the money to try out one of those silicone hump implants to all our friends on the water in the rim above river mile 61 we wish you all a long full life and a happy spawning run but we are fish out of water and now it's time to go and the songs of the humpback chub are brought to you straight from the heart of the wild grand canyon live from a river called the colorado bring back the river set that muddy water free we need floods warm water and adaptive management set the colorado free Bring back the river, set that muddy water free. We want to frolic and spawn our whole lives long in the shade under whaler's boat. In the sky blue waters at the mouth of the little sea. Set the Colorado free. Set that muddy water free. Set the Colorado free. The Humpback Chub Song, written and recorded by Dr. Larry Stevens. Sang on location around a crackling fire a little ways downstream of Pumpkin Spring on the edge of the Colorado River in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. The humpback chub is a federally protected fish that lived originally in fast waters of the Colorado River system in the United States, pre-Glen Canyon Dam. 
The species takes its name from the prominent hump between the head and dorsal fin, which is thought to direct the flow of water over the body and help maintain body position in the swift currents of the Colorado. The humpback chub's population in the Colorado River has been reduced dramatically, primarily due to the habitat loss, such as the construction of Glen Canyon Dam. The Little Colorado River enters the mainstream of Colorado River in Grand Canyon National Park, about 80 miles below Lake Powell. The lower eight miles of the Little Colorado River is the main spawning site for humpback chub and is an extremely rugged and remote area accessible only by boat, helicopter, or rigorous hiking. The humpback chub is again under threat with a proposed project called the Grand Canyon Escalade. The proposal is to build a hotel overlooking the Grand Canyon with an Escalade system transporting tourists down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon where the Little Colorado meets the Colorado River. To help continue to protect the humpback chub and the wilderness experience of floating down the Grand Canyon, you can visit savetheconfluence.com. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for outdoor information and inspiration. We are on location on the Grand Canyon, floating down the Colorado River. We have been doing the guide training seminar. So for the guide training seminar trip, there's been a lot of geologists, hydrologists, biologists, and evolutionary ecologists like Larry Stevens, who's actually rowing the boat right now. I just got to say, Larry, watching your line through Hans was one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever seen in my life. So thank you for showing us all while we were scouting. And thank you for talking with me and thank you for rowing the boat. Well, thank you very much. Let's talk about the biodiversity of the Grand Canyon before Glen Canyon Dam and after. So Grand Canyon has a remarkable array of life forms in it. Perhaps 20,000 macro species, species we can actually see, untold numbers of bacteria and microbes that we haven't studied. In terms of the distribution of those life forms around the landscape, we find that about 35% of the of the vertebrate species and the plant species, and that totals about 2,500 species of organisms, are found in or near the river. So there's a really tremendous concentration of life along the waterways. In pre-dam time, Glen Canyon was a warm, muddy, flow-variable river system. The sediment concentration of the river prevented light from reaching the floor of the river, and that meant that the productivity of the river was pretty low in pre-dam time. So the natural condition was rather low productivity, probably rather low biodiversity. You know, we have just eight species of fish in Grand Canyon. That number is trivial compared to, say, the Mississippi River system with hundreds of species of fish in it. Rather low biodiversity, rather low productivity, but the life forms that were here in the river and along the banks were uniquely adapted to this incredibly harsh, variable environment. We today talk about humpback chub, which if you look at a picture of it, is this incredibly weird-looking fish with a big nuchal hump on the front part of its upper portion and little tiny eyes and a kind of a long snout with a droopy mouth. How in the world could that species have evolved here over the last two million years? Well, it's something that's been tested by time, tested by the flows and the sediment loads and the incredible environmental changes that have taken place here. Catastrophic floods from lava dams that poured through the river system. Somehow that species was able to survive and proliferate in this incredibly difficult environment. Humpback chub is one example of many unique life forms that evolved in the pre-dam Colorado River. 
Glen Canyon Dam transformed the river from a seasonally very warm 85 degree Fahrenheit degree river in the summer months with freezing conditions in the river during the winter to a cold water system that's almost uniform in temperature. The water is clear because the sediment's captured by Glen Canyon Dam and therefore light reaches the floor of the river as it is right today. The river is green here, almost 200 miles downstream from the dam. And what the dam did was to stop the big floods from coming through. So those three changes, they accomplished what humanity usually accomplishes in ecosystems in that the dam simplified the ecosystem and brought the natural variability under control. That's what humans do. We simplify ecosystems and simplify the diversity of life within them for our own benefits. Now, we normally think of what humans do as increasing the disturbance to the natural world, but here we had a highly naturally disturbed ecosystem and we transformed it into a highly productive and controlled ecosystem. Unforeseen changes in the system after the dam were many. Nobody really predicted that the vegetation would grow from high elevations along the shorelines down to the river. But any river geomorphologist looking at this river now knows in an instant that it's a dam-regulated river because the vegetation comes right down to the shoreline. All that vegetation would have been scoured away in pre-dam time. We've got about 2,500 acres, that's 1,000 hectares of riparian habitat along the river that pretty much didn't exist until the advent of Glen Canyon Dam. And the reason that's important is because riparian habitat is so productive for wildlife. Most of our bird species, virtually all of our neotropical migrant bird species, live in or require the riparian habitat for nesting and reproduction and feeding. So accidentally creating almost 300 miles of riparian habitat with Glen Canyon Dam has been a tremendous boon for wildlife, completely unexpected. We now have many bird species and populations that are in relatively stable condition here that couldn't have existed in the pre-dam time because there simply wasn't enough habitat. Coarsening of the sand has also happened. The beach sands that characterized the pre-dam time were very fine grain, almost flower-like as described by the early river runners. And now it's medium-sized sand, relatively coarse. It can be transported by the wind as we have had abundantly expressed to us in the last couple days, but it's pretty coarse. And what sand coarseness means is that the fine particles, the silts and the clays have been winnowed out either by wind or by the flows of the river. And so the sand has a lower concentration of nutrients in it. Nutrients are carried by silts and clays. And the sand holds water poorly. So there's been a long-term translation of the soils of the river corridor into a situation in which they are no longer able to support germination of most of our riparian species. Therefore, we don't have cottonwood, willow, or many of our common riparian plants able to germinate along the river anymore. One of the species that has been successful up until recent times has been tamarisk, which is a non-native plant, and that really came to dominance very quickly after the dam and native species have gradually moved into and begun to replace tamarisk over time. And that's been a fascinating successional process to be able to look at. Non-native plants play a big role here. About 10.5% of the species of plants in Grand Canyon are non-native. That's the equivalent of the non-native plant load in the United Kingdom, for example. So here's a wild, pristine landscape that floristically has been rather abundantly invaded by non-native species. So these are changes that were not really anticipated by anybody managing or planning the construction of Glen Canyon Dam. And many trade-offs, uh, rather abundant riparian habitat, in some senses replacing the habitat that was eliminated by Glen Canyon Dam up in Glen Canyon. 
However, there we probably did lose quite a few species that lived in the springs and tributaries without having been documented. Not all the trade-offs have been negative from a biological standpoint. We have more habitat down here than we did before, larger populations of plants and animals, and in some ways improved habitat. Could it be better? A river like this, especially in the wide reaches, anywhere in the southwest would have large stands of cottonwood and willow along them, which would be ideal for bird life. And we don't have that here because beaver populations have expanded in post-dam time. And the beavers really favor cottonwood and willow as a food source. So therefore, we haven't had some of the characteristic vegetation types of the southwest develop here, even though that would be uh, highly advantageous for managing bird populations. More and more, Grand Canyon has become an island of habitat surrounded by a sea of developed lands. Here in the southwest, we've lost 90% of our riparian vegetation. That means that we've lost 90% of the habitat for some of our most remarkable southwestern species. The trade-offs are many. The trade-offs are economic, they're environmental, they are societal, they have to do with recreation. Changing the management to make it a more public process is something that came about because of the 1996 EIS and, and record of decision. That set up a public forum for, for discussion of these topics with the Secretary of the Interior, and that adaptive management program has actually begun to turn the tide on how the public can contribute to making decisions about improved management of the dam for both economic and environmental purposes. Grand Canyon isn't the biggest canyon in the world. It's not the deepest or the largest, although it's a pretty massive feature. But we've been able to learn over the last 20 or 30 years about it as a large, deep canyon landform. How do large, deep canyons affect the life around them has been one of the central questions in my life. And that question is answered by understanding the ranges of species, the relationships between the species that are here and where they're positioned elevationally, what kinds of habitats they require, and trying to understand biodiversity in the context of this large, deep canyon. Several patterns have emerged out of these studies. Large, deep canyons affect the life around them as a corridor through the landscape. The surrounding landscape is quite high. The canyon is a strip of desert habitat traveling 300 miles through the landscape. Large, deep canyons function as corridors, as barriers, obviously. Anybody coming to the South Rim can't help but be impressed with how difficult it must be to get across the landscape. Same for many terrestrial animals. But the canyon also holds refugia, places that are uniquely suitable to some species within it. Caves and springs, both north and south-facing slopes that support species that are unique to the landscape. So corridors, barriers, refugia, and then for some species like ravens and bighorn sheep, the canyon doesn't really restrict gene flow. The animals are able to move across it, swim the river, or fly across it with impunity. As a landform, Grand Canyon is interesting because there are two basins to Grand Canyon. An eastern basin that extends from Lee's Ferry down to mile 140. The eastern basin is separated from the western basin, which is connected to the Mojave Desert, by about a 20-mile stretch of river called the Muav Gorge. Cliffs from river to rim don't allow the passage of animals, really, or plants through that corridor. The eastern basin is quite large and quite isolated. And that's where most of our endemic species in Grand Canyon occur. The Grand Canyon pink rattlesnake, several plant species, half a dozen butterfly species and other insects. So quite an array of life forms are unique to that eastern basin of Grand Canyon, not found anywhere else in the world. The western basin is more connected to the Mojave Desert, and that portion of the canyon has a lot of connection to the southern deserts. 
And the way these basins have functioned and the, and the structure of this large deep canyon has functioned over geologic time is that during the ice ages, northerly and boreal species have moved south and into the canyon. And during the interglacial periods, desert species have been able to move northward and expand upward in elevation. So in that way, Grand Canyon is a mixing zone of both Pleistocene relic species and desert forms that have more recently invaded the landscape. Larry, you are an evolutionary ecologist. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you do as an evolutionary ecologist and what we talked about this morning, the definition of evolution? Right. So as an evolutionary ecologist, I am interested in testing evolutionary ideas about how life forms develop, particularly here in relation to landform development. Do we have biological evidence of evolution of Grand Canyon as a landform as expressed by the species that live here? The definition of evolution is pretty simple. It's simply a change in gene frequency over time. That doesn't satisfy many people because it's not necessarily directional. There's no plan to it. It happens as a matter of basically of luck. So a very unsatisfying answer to humanity that longs for guidance on how to behave and how to function. Evolutionary thought does not provide us with a moral code, although I would say that science as a whole does provide us with a moral directive in which understanding the nature of reality as best we can is our purpose as scientists. Larry, can we talk about the evolution of mammals? These evolutionary processes have brought mammals into focus in the last 70 million years. With the final extinction of the terrestrial dinosaurs and the advent of birds, mammals were able to proliferate and enlarge in size and become a dominant force on Earth. And through the last 65 million years, the Earth has seen hundreds of thousands of mammal species come and go. We have now about 45, 4,600 species of mammals on Earth. That's a drop in the bucket in the number of species of mammals that have occurred on Earth over that time frame. Many of the life forms of mammals that previously existed, we can't even imagine. Elephant-sized animals with hammerhead shark configuration. Gigantic predators. We can't even begin to imagine some of these things. Stellar sea cow recently extinct. was 18 feet long. We don't have any comparable creature like that left on the planet. The present-day manatees are diminutive in relation to that animal. So the predators have changed greatly over time. The taxa that have contributed to those lineages, the dominance of rhinos, for example, all across the northern hemisphere in North America and and Europe and Asia over the last few million years has given way to human depredation on those large populations and loss of many of those species. Darwin and others back in his day talked about the great chain of being in which all life is related. And we have now, with advent of genetic techniques, we can actually look at the genomes of E. coli, bacteria, and compare them with the genome of humans. 20% of the genes in E. coli are similar to those of humans. I have a friend who wears a bright yellow shirt that says, humans share 25% of their genome with bananas. Get over yourself. We are all part of a great chain of being, and we have the advantage of getting to try to understand that great chain and to care for the other links in that chain. How do you guys handle fear? When I first started rowing boats down here, I weighed 115 pounds. I still have little chicken arms. I'm not very strong. I've never had a lot of upper body strength. And I would float into rapids really kind of afraid. And it was hard for me to get past that. But when I was young, 
when I was afraid of things, I just didn't try. I would avoid even trying to do things that I was afraid of, and I felt like I missed out on a lot. And so when I came here, I just made a conscious decision that no matter what, I'm not going to let fear stop me. I'd float into a rapid thinking, okay, I've passed the point of no return. The only way that I can get out of this is to row through the rapid. <laughs> and, and somehow I got through it. I fell out of my boat. I careened and I crashed and people were very patient with me. Rowing did not come easily to me. It took a long time for me to learn. But I had a lot of wonderful patient people who just kept helping me along. Fear is the body's way of telling us that we're close to the edge. And to be able to use that energy in a way that supports us is the trick with fear. And by experiencing it over and over and over, seeing how it works, seeing, how our, seeing what our response is to it, gives you the chance to actually perfect the art of not falling to fear, but incorporating the fear and that energy into how we run the rapids, how we climb the cliff, how we talk with other people. That's the lessons that the river has taught me about how to accommodate the natural desire to avoid some of the situations that we get into. Early on in my boating, I found a plaque, and it said the most dangerous thing in the world is to try to leap a chasm in two jumps. So you don't just float into a rapid hoping for the best. You go into it with absolutely every bit of focus that you have, and that's helped me get through that jitteriness above rapids. We have been on location floating down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, speaking with Jerry Ledbetter and Larry Stevens. Thank you very much to the both of you for giving me the time doing this interview with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mandela. My last question is for both of you. What do you love about the Grand Canyon? Everything. I live in Flagstaff, and I love my home there. But when I launch from Lee's Ferry and start floating down the river, I feel like I'm coming home. And me too. The ability to live freely in this landscape, to wonder at the natural features that are here and the species that I encounter is such a gift. And also the incredibly wonderful people that live and work in the canyon. Let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips from each of you. I just tell people don't do anything stupid. <laughs> That's one. Learn from your environment as to what you need to know. Keep the mind open and keep trying to learn. With rowing, it's not about strength, it's about seeing, and it's about momentum. And a little bit of it has to do with being able to move a boat. But mostly it's about seeing and understanding where you are and where you want to go. I also tell people to plan ahead. You know, you see people on the trail in the middle of Grand Canyon, far from any water supply, and they have like two cups of water they don't have a sun hat. They don't have sunscreen. They have short sleeve shirts instead of long sleeve. And they just haven't planned ahead. And you get into big trouble fast down here if you do that. Another lesson I would say to everyone is honor your parents by outliving them and moving someplace really fun so that they have someplace really fun to come visit. If you make a mistake, try to learn from it. Try to put it to good use in the future pass on information, but I've made a lot of mistakes. It seems like at every point in this river, I think, oh boy, I almost hit that rock. But learning from your mistakes is pretty huge. Do what you can't not. Don't hurt anybody if you can help it, but follow your passions. What song would you guys like to end the show with? So this is a song called On the Water that myself, Larry Stevens, and 
uh, Matt Hall and several of us in the Butt Pygmy Choir have been choreographing for the last couple of months. And it's a song that's come out of a long time on the river here. On the water, on the water, on the water, running free. On the water, on the water, on the water, that's where I want to be. On the water, on the water, running free. On the water, on the water, on the water, that's where I want to be. I stepped out this morning to a dog-eat-dog world town. If you cross the mayor's daughter, you better not hang around long. The voice inside that police car said, we don't like your kind around. Guess I'll get to the ferry and rig for the river and take my boat on down. I think about this river whenever I'm away. On the rim world with its bitter winter, overcast and gray. Societal distractions lead one so far astray. But the canyon's blue cerulean calls more clearly every day. I've got to get back on the Colorado to the river of my heart. Help me find my way again, a new life's course to chart. I've got to get back on the Colorado where the moonlight hits the sand. Paints the walls in silence with a vision vast and grand. I've got to get back on the Colorado. Back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado River in the Grand. Brown River, it's a mighty hot day, I'm like to roll over and die. Brown River, it's a wonderful way, the way your body lies, the way you roll. I am just a boatman and you know my boatman's story A rubber raft, bull boat, kayak, or wooden dory I'm the rowboat, no boat, death star, I am the Emma Dean Hanging on a tractor tube and living the river dream so give up your makeup contradictions, your karaoke blues, where choice is clear and options several, weather is the news. Just put the sun and moon beside me here in the halls of time. Let me laugh with friends again, make river music rhyme. I gotta get back on the Colorado. Back on the Colorado. Back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado River in the Grand. I gotta get back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado, running free. Back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado, back on the Colorado, that's where I want to be. On the water, on the water, on the water, running free.
running free. On the water, on the water, on the water, that's where I want to be. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here. You have been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration. An adventure radio series with a new episode coming out every week. Subscribe to The Trail Less Traveled on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to view pictures and read biographies of the other guests featured on the show. I want to thank my guests for this week, Dr. Larry Stevens and Jerry Ledbetter. Jerry Ledbetter is a pilot, geographer, environmental activist, and river guide in the Grand Canyon. Dr. Larry Stevens still works as a whitewater guide in the Grand Canyon, in addition to being the curator of ecology at the Museum of Northern Arizona in Flagstaff and is the senior ecologist for Grand Canyon Wildlands Council. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series, which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week is to squeeze a trigger like you're squeezing one drop of water from an eyedropper, and your shooting will improve. That's it for this week, Missoula, but until next week, get out there and shred the gnar. Because the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. <laughs>